HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible decade of food radio. We really would never have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so... I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building and growing consumer brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school, cafe, and event space. A product that people buy in grocery stores is an entirely new business, and I had a lot to learn. So in my efforts to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me on production and distribution, sales and legal, PR, and social media. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Jordan Salcido, founder and CEO of Drink Ramona, an organic canned wine spritz with a cult-like following. Jordan has a killer fine wine background with over a decade spent in the industry. She began her career hostessing at WD50 before becoming a prep cook at Daniel, sommelier and manager of 11 Madison Park, and then eventually wine and beverage director for David Chang's Momofuku restaurants. 
Jordan is a master sommelier candidate, a wine enthusiast 40 under 40, and Ramona was a semifinalist in 2018 and 2019 for a James Beard Award. Plus, you're also just really fun to talk to. So, welcome. Likewise. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Um, We were just talking before the show about a panel that we did together at Haven's Kitchen a couple months ago with there were three founders and three funders or, you know, venture folk. Um, And we were just sort of talking about the process of raising money and all of the feelings. And I think what stood out to me was just how much the women in the audience just loved you. Like you really resonated with everyone. I don't know. It was just very interesting to me. Like they liked whatever it was that you were putting down, they were picking up, as Maddie would say. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, And hopefully able to share any mistakes that I've learned or insight I've gained. Hopefully that doesn't like make you feel like the pressure's on to do very well on this today. I'm going to try, guys. (laughs) Um, And I think also people love Ramona. I mean, I think people really love Ramona. So that's you know, 95% of it, right? Like you've made something that people really connect with. So it's pretty cool. Well, thank you for that. And yeah. that, that is, a, I mean, that's certainly the goal. And the, I mean, the, the, the idea was to, to build something that I, I wanted and right. see in the market. And it just felt like um, the value system that I expected from anything I was personally willing to s- consume was absent right. from this entire swath of the quote unquote accessible wine market. Yes. And it just didn't feel like it had to be that way. And so I, I want to get into, cause I liked starting off with sort of like, what did you want to be when you were nine and what did you study? Cause obviously you weren't like, I want to make a wine spritz in a can, you know, exactly. but I do. It's funny. Cause I, I think of wine coolers and they bring back such this like visceral feeling of like being in college and stopping at the, like at the gas station and getting a Boone's country quencher quencher. I think it was like called, I don't even know. Was it called country quencher or quencher? Okay, so in Colorado, what yeah. we had access to was, I think they were called California coolers. Yeah, totally. And I first had one in High school uh-huh. when I was twenty one. I'm course. sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like an alternative to beer that somebody had yeah. brought to this house party. Yeah, and it was like this revelation. Yes, and as somebody who's never liked beer, and at first I thought, oh, it will be you know something that I acquire when I <laughs> right. when I have more refined taste yes. buds. I've only like grown ever right. stronger in my total distaste for shitty beer. That's so funny, right? And um, I don't remember, I think it was like mixed berry and then there was probably some citrus, something, yeah. but it was such a revelation. Like, yeah. oh my God, I can get a little buzz and yep. it doesn't taste like total shit. So am I allowed to curse? On- yes, okay, you totally sorry. are. Okay, sorry. You are absolutely allowed to curse. Um, curse all you want. <laughs> so, okay. So let's talk a little bit about, um, were you a food person? Were you a brand person? What did you what did you want to be when you grew up? What was your childhood like? Okay, you know. so I would say I'm certainly a food person with this interesting nostalgia for wine that I never 
ever connected until I was like firmly ensconced in the wine industry. Interesting. And that is that my father, uh-huh. whose father passed away when he was 13, mm. he really never talks about his father and he has very few memories, I think because it was such a difficult time in his life. Yep. And the one memory that he's always shared is um, making wine with his dad, who was an Italian-American immigrant, in the basement when he was little. So he would help, you know, press the wine and get the grapes from the train station. That's crazy. Yes. And this this was a thing that many people did in the Italian-American community. They just made wine in the basement. Yeah. It was, you know, bad house wine. Wow. Yeah. It was just... It did the trick. (laughs) It did the trick. And so my dad always encouraged us to try wine. And and my my grandmother, my dad's mom, uh, was an incredible cook. And actually now my mom, my mom who grew up in Great Bend, Kansas, mm-hmm. became an incredible cook because food was so important to my right. dad and to and his, his family. And his mother, right. And his mother, yeah. exactly. Um, and so food was always, like, I remember at one point I was given the option, I think it was my 10th birthday, and my mom said, either you can have a birthday party right. or you can pick any restaurant uh, in the entire city of Denver yep. and you can go to dinner and you can go to dinner there and you can bring a friend. Right. <clears throat> and I was like, oh my God, that's, we're doing that. Right. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. So, I mean, cause sometimes I, I, I'd say it's about 50, 50, like the, when I asked the question, were you a food person? Some people were like, no, I just knew I wanted to have a business Interesting. or I knew I wanted to lead a team, you know? And then some of us are like, I've always been a food person, yes. like viscerally, obsessed with it almost since I can remember even if we didn't have access to like great food you know we just loved it yes um and were you precocious were you quiet were you I think um, I was both I'm I'm not quite sure to this day if I'm an introvert or not. I'm I, an ambivert. Oh my God. Yeah. I think you I am probably the, are too. Yes. Yeah. Where I, there are certainly yeah. moments where Definitely. I enjoy that. So yep. like, I'm the oldest of three girls. Mm-hmm. And I do remember, like I would, I would, I, I liked that I had these sort of two younger siblings <laughs> to like boss peons, around. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so like, you know, I, like if I were creating a play, then I would be whatever character yes. I wanted and they would be the characters that I needed them to be. I and, think that's awesome. And, and so like in some ways I was sort of used to having this autonomy to yep. execute my creative vision. Um, so there was that. I remember like selling. Thi- I can so picture it right now too. Like you be the tree and you be the hedgehog and I will be the princess exactly. and also the queen. Exactly. Right. And you can be the queen's cat. Right. <laughs> and crawl over there. 100%. No, awesome. you're doing it wrong. Can you please? No, you have to be quieter. So I think like I definitely had like innate bossy tendencies. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, you're an oldest. Because I'm an oldest. Yeah. And then I also, like, I remember we would bake a lot or, and, and there were like, we did lemonade stands right. and I would like sell things on the roadside. Right. And so, but I never ever connected those things. Did you have like an idea? Did you want to be a vet? Like, what did you want? I did. I wanted to be, I think I like heard from someone that there was something called a marine biologist where Ah, you got to, you know, go swimming with large sea mammals. Yeah. And I decided that that was what I wanted to do. But it was very fleeting. It was sort of like, that sounds really cool. Until you took science. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And then I had, so writing, I I had this amazing um, creative writing teacher or I guess she was an English literature teacher, and she really encouraged that in me in high school. 
mm-hmm. and I won a few writing awards. And so that sort of firmed up for me that that's what I would do. I right. liked writing. I was good at writing. I would go into writing and majored in English literature and minored in philosophy and, and thought, okay, I'm going to, that's what I will do. And I think my parents really loved the idea mm-hmm. of writing. So I'm sure that subconsciously factored in. Yep. And um, yeah, so that was just sort of what I figured I would do. And, and did you move to New York to be a writer? I did. And were you going to be a food writer or a novelist? It's or funny you say that. Yeah. I, I didn't know. And I came from a small, wonderful liberal arts college that encouraged us to think, but, but not, not get a career. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There are a lot of great colleges like that. Yes. Yeah. And in retrospect, I can look back and say, ah, oh, mm-hmm. I get it now. But at the time it was, and I think at least up until that time, I had never heard anyone else talk about how difficult those early 20 years yeah. can be or 20 yeah. early years in the 20s yeah. can be. So I moved to New York, you know, full of... Arrogance is the wrong word. Optimism. Optimism. Thank <laughs> you. That's exactly right. Yeah. Like, you know, things will work out and yeah. I will work hard and I'll move to New York and it'll all work out as planned. Like that girl. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I I, I, uh, I remember I had some interviews set up and one was with Elle magazine and this was also the middle of a recession. Yes, totally. And so um, I was told by like the L team, they said, look, we really enjoyed meeting you. We wish we could hire you, but we can't. But a friend of ours is starting this beauty company. You might want to just sort of work there for a little while or, you know, see if, see if that's a path you want to take. So I ended up like interviewing for that job and, and got it. And I won't name what it was, but it was the most vapid job I've ever had. Okay. Writing copy for... Not even. I was literally packing lipsticks and shipping them out and there was no sense of culture and there was no, it was really sort of like, okay, you're the, you're the new um, low person on the totem pole (laughs) and this is our um, room full of lipsticks so we're just going to tell you who to ship them out to and then you know it's so interesting one of the reasons I love doing this show is I love hearing how everyone's path got them to where they are there is no part of a path that doesn't lead to where you are now and it seems kind of like a random little like off the you know but Probably that influenced, I'm sure, the way that you founded your own company oh, and the way that you deal with, you know, onboarding people 100%. and explaining context to people that might not otherwise and making know sure it. they feel like they're getting to do something yeah. interesting, yeah, and that they feel valued and so cool. Uh-huh. So how did you then get into the food world? Okay, so I had since I was 14 been I'd ho- I'd always had some kind of job, so I sort of babysat for. Right. like age 12 to whatever and then you're such an oldest I'm like looking at you now <laughs> like oldest written across your forehead yeah go on and so let's see I think when I was 14 in Colorado you can get a driver's permit and you can drive with a parent right when you're 14 which I did and then I like got into a fender bender uh-huh. my dad and my mom too they both handled it really well they were like okay no one was hurt this is annoying and you're gonna pay for it right Go find a job. Wow. And, and so I, uh, I was a barista at a coffee shop. And then like the next summer, I realized you could make more money if you're a hostess at a restaurant. Yep. And then I realized you could make even more money if you were a server at a yep. restaurant. And so I sort of had that experience, um, which was like 
treated as irrelevant, even though it was it was um, uh, one of the Houston's restaurants. Uh, yeah. like had a it was called the Cherry Creek Grill, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, there was a, so when I moved to New York, bef- while I was in the interview process before yeah. the, the Vapid Beauty job, um, I ended up, I just went and I took my resume, which was actually something my mom was very good at always encouraging. Right. Like, okay, if you have a problem, how are you going to solve it? It's up to you. Right. Um, so I printed out my resume and I, you know, walked into 10 restaurants nearby my apartment in the East Village. Yep. And one of them was a restaurant called Topo that, that hired me. The manager was a guy named Ron. I don't know why I remember <laughs> that. And he was like, well, oh. it was significant. Yeah. Clearly, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, you have no New York experience, but I know the Houston's training program and yep. you can come on board. And so that like I, I ended up just sort of outlasting all these other people who right. for whatever reason left or quit or were fired or whatever. And then mm-hmm. I ended up like in an extremely unqualified management position. Right. As this restaurant is like tanking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was put in charge. Not of, your fault. Not no, your fault. No, no. But it was really an unstable sort of position because I remember <laughs> like as I it was before I realized the restaurant's tanking and but at that point I had been offered like this management job, but right. it was like, it was so, it never could have like gotten away with what they got away with back then. But right. cause it was like, okay, we're going to pay you a manager salary, but we'll also pay you <laughs> to be a hostess and therefore you can make extra cash. Oh, right. Which is totally not allowed. Totally yep. illegal, but it was great for me. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'm making 60 grand a year instead of yeah. like 25 K yeah. at the beauty thing. Okay, great. I will leave the beauty thing. Right. And then I was firmly entrenched into in, hospitality. Yes. And then there was a, really like the savior was this guy, Fran Derby, who said, hey, um, you clearly care too much to work at this restaurant. Come with me to this new restaurant that's opening. My friend Wiley is going to open a place called WD-50. And so that's how I ended up there. And then how did the move to back of house go? Okay. So at that point, I then knew that I liked... Then in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm good at writing and I like restaurants. Right. So what I want to do is I should write about food. And this was like before the blog scene exploded. Right. And so I decided I would do that. My my mom actually came to visit. And this was like... This is like such a good... And I can see this in retrospect now. But this was like a moment of like extremely difficult extremely good parenting yeah. where she was like, you do not seem healthy. You do not seem like yourself. Why don't you come back to Colorado and figure out what you want to do? Just right. take a couple of months and strategize. If you want to stay in restaurants, move back to New York. Mm-hmm. If you don't, then don't, you know, but right. so I moved back to Colorado nice. with this. And then I guess like moving back was a very difficult decision, but it made me like more committed and driven than ever to both do the thing I set out to do, which was to write about food in some capacity and to get back to New York. Yeah. To like conquer the city. Yes. It had conquered you a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And so I ended up getting, I submitted a writing sample to a bunch of places and ended up getting a call back from the Denver post Uh, which was like the... Yeah, that's great. And uh, they happened to be looking for a Cheap Eats critic. So I like landed this $150 a week Cheap Eats job and then got 
a day job at this cookbook publishing company, which was like back to your point about right. how every job, and I will not name that. I don't, I'm sure it doesn't exist anymore, but it was another thing where it's like, right. oh my God, terrible! this cannot be my life. Yeah. I have to get out of here. Um, and then I enrolled in culinary school. So I started working at it. So the culinary school, you weren't planning on being a cook. You wanted to get culinary experience so that you could write about exactly. it better. Got exactly. it. Exactly. Okay. I felt like, especially in the Denver scene at the time, there was an, a really interested group of diners who, now that I had seen a little bit in New York, and WD-50 was really the the window to that. Yeah. So like day one, Jean-Georges comes in, yeah. and like just as the hostess, having to know who all these people were, yeah. and then learning about this universe. And then Wiley is so intentional and cerebral yeah. and creative, and it was, and he had a liberal arts degree, and so that was also very freeing, you know, because growing up in, in the narrative that I had understood about restaurants was yep. that restaurants is something you do when you're not doing the thing you're actually going to do with yeah. your life. Um, and so Wiley, I think just Wiley existing right. changed that paradigm. I, yeah, I mean, I feel like that, I don't know how old you are, but I feel like that changed. I always think like film school was, you know, there's like some sort of like film school is to colon... 80s yes like yes restaurant and hospitality <laughs> colon 90s or you know like so it true. was there it, because I had a friend who went into hospitality in 1995 and her father actually had like an intervention wow. like he she ended up running a massive restaurant group and she's been wildly successful but at the time it was like <gasps> the horror like there was something about restaurants that was just not for someone she graduated from Princeton and her dad basically like had a meltdown yes and like that just wouldn't happen today today people would be like my son's opening this and yes. my daughter's d- doing this you're and you know so it's right. just it's kind of like film school you you're, know in you're a way so right. i don't know so that's just i'm I, we got to get back to yes. wine because then we got to get to ramona so you were you were writing and you were you had your culinary degree and then so I, wine. through the culinary degree yeah. I I had to or in order to graduate I needed to cook in a real restaurant right and so I just reached out to every contact that I had and actually the person who got me the job at Danielle or who got me the interview at Danielle is now my husband and oh wow so I had met him at WD fifty and we, nice. we had sort of kept in touch and he'd said you know I think you should apply there. That's I, a good way to do your... Yes. <laughs> yes. No, and, and it was like, so I staged there and a few other places, but that world for me, it was just, right. it, it was incredible. It was like, you know, you have the sous chef at Trois Gros who's there for the month and you yeah. have everyone, for, it was all of the things that I had missed when right. I was working at the dumb cookbook company or the, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it was where it was just like, I can't have a, I, I yes, you know, the, the thing that I so love about New York is this opportunity to have these amazing conversations and connect with people that, you know, that, that you would never encounter. You know, I just feel like there's another similarity because one of the things that I feel is a strong suit of Haven's Kitchen is that I run the CPG like I run the brick and mortar. Mm. Like I run the CPG the way that I've learned how to run a hospitality business from all directions, right? Like from the consumer and my team and the way that we think about things. And I feel like that's one of the things I love about it. But if you think about it, it's probably exactly the same with you. You run Ramona probably like you would run your own restaurant. 
Yes. You know what I mean? Like with all, because it is a team and it is a family and it's built on this system. Yes. And it's, it connects these people that for whatever reason, something in us is a little bit lost or a little bit seeking something, right? Like it's like the island of the lost toys in a way, coming together and making this thing together. Yes. And... I don't think a lot of companies are run that way. Well, and who doesn't want to feel part of something? Right. I mean, I think when I think of the jobs that were the most, the least enjoyable, it was because there was no way to connect what I was doing to any bigger vision or community or role. And right. so it just sort of felt like treading water yeah. or spinning wheels or sort of going yeah, off the Yeah, something with no, nothing attached to yes. it. Yes. Okay. Yes. So wine, Ramona. Wine and Ramona. So, uh, so I go to Danielle and I'm cooking there and I fall in love with the culture. In fact, I at the time was sure I wanted to write for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And I had this moment where something funny, which I will not go into here, like, but happened with one of the editors at the New York Times where I thought I was going this direction. And then a sign from the universe was like, well, are you really sure you want to get into that right. direction? Whereas like everything that I was doing in the restaurant community was so invigorating and enlivening. enlivening. And I guess that is when I started to listen to myself. And yeah. And it was like, wait, I'm on this path because I sort of gave myself this path because this path was control after living in New York in a moment where I didn't have that. But now I'm in a place where maybe I can listen to intuition a little bit more and make choices that are more aligned with what feels like the right thing. And so um, Danielle, I got to cook with him at the last thing I I cooked was an event called the La Palais de Neige, a huge wine event, although this was a very tiny version of it, um, with five of the greatest winemakers in Burgundy and then five great chefs. And this was all in Aspen, Colorado. Right. And I remember I was like on on docket, and then I was told by the PR team, they're like, actually, we definitely do not have budget for you, a random uh, summer intern. Right. No. Aww. And I was like, if I can get myself there for free, can I cook? Right. And the answer was yes. And so that, for me, that cur- that moment changed everything in my career. And Danielle, my goal was just to make sure that by the end, that you know, if should I ever need one, Danielle would write a letter yep. of recommendation for me. Awesome. And instead, it was better than that. And he was like, "You clearly love wine. Uh, you should work harvest in Burgundy." And uh, and I was like, "How does that even happen?" And right. he was like, "Well, tomorrow we'll go to this dinner, and you will stand next to me, and uh, that will be helpful for you." And, which it was. <laughs> yeah, I can <laughs> and, imagine. <laughs> and you'll you should just ask, talk to a couple of the winemakers, and and see which one of them you know you you can work with over right. the harvest. And, and then you just go harvest wine. Yeah, and now I think there are you know more barriers to entry, but right. at the time it it worked out perfectly. So I worked out. I worked with a, um, a winemaker, Jean Pierre de Smet, and it happened to be his last year at this winery, Domaine de Larlo. And, um, and it was magic. I was just starting to date Robert at the time. Right. And I remember he said, uh, I told, I came back and I told him, I was like, I'm going to work harvest in Burgundy. And he was like the Burgundy guy. Right. And he was like, I'm coming. And I was like, no, <laughs> you're not. This right. is my thing. <laughs> A week later, he was like, so I booked us tickets. <laughs> and it ended up being great because he Aww. did his thing. And right. then I did, I did mine. And yeah, you're really just, so it was 
10 straight days of picking and you're wearing wow. rubber overalls and rubber yeah. boots because it was two, it, 2006 and it was super, super rainy that year. Yeah. And so you just, but you're seeing the different bugs in the different vineyards and you're smelling the way that this vineyard smells yep. instead of that or the way that the light hits or so the way cool. that you, and all of these details result in yeah the microclimate of how these grapes are grown. And so let's fast forward a little bit because you clearly became like a superstar in that world. And then what you could have just continued being a superstar and being a wine. I love your guru. questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but then, but you had, from what I understand, a bit of an epiphany, like on parental leave. Yes, exactly. And I think that was because I had the space to do it. I, mm-hmm. I had had this sort of nugget of an idea and like a sort of leading up. And I think like the, the dichotomy is important or the juxtaposition mm-hmm. of these sort of two moments in my life. Um, leading up to that, I was taking the Master Sommelier exam and we were opening Co. Right. And it was so the, you know, like Co when we were, or we moved Co and reopened it at the current location and extra place. And there was not a night that I ever got home before three. Yeah. And it was usually four. And that was great because those two hours after service ends, after cleanup, where you're just sort of hashing out ideas. Mm -hmm. But then it was like this sort of thing where I guess I just knew. So it was like studying in the morning and then opening co and refining systems and, and, you know, making sure we were learning from our mistakes and improving. That was for like a six month period. Right. Uh, culminating with the MS exam, which I knew that that was going to be my year to pass. Right. Um, and you there either, are like 13 of them in the world or something. There are, yeah, yeah, what are there now? And now they're sort of dealing with a major PR scandal with oh. like a cheating thing where like somebody cheated that the one master gave away the answers and they oh, ended no. up taking away 24, pin, 23 pins of the 24. And oh, then wow. it was like very much like shove it under right. the rug. No, that never happened. And okay. I think they're dealing with it. They're, they're sorting out their own okay. stuff right now. But my experience was, um, and I should say and preface this by saying I'm so grateful for that journey because I have learned so much through that process and also the community that became part of my world as a result. Um, But it was incredibly intense. And this was was my my third year and you get three tries to pass. So I'd already passed the blind tasting. And then there's this other part, the service exam, which is like a service obstacle course. And then... There's also the theory where they can ask you, they ask you a hundred questions right. about, you know, any minutia or anything and in one hour and it's timed and all that. Um, so I was really worried, I guess like in general, the things that I was never sure that I could pass, um, were the theory and the blind tasting. Right. I ended up passing blind tasting on the first try, nothing the second try. And then the third try, which incidentally was the year that we were also nominated for a James Beard Outstanding Service Award right. at Co, where I've never been more on point service wise, yeah. um, ended up failing service that year because of a, a, the, my experience is that it was one table and my feedback was that I didn't seem like myself to the one. So there are three tables, uh. past two of them. And then the one table, I didn't seem like myself to this one table. Do they know you? That have never seen me work in a restaurant that also don't work in restaurants anymore. Right. So it was very that tough. you didn't seem like yourself. That was yeah. the feedback. <laughs> and that was really tough feedback because, yeah. because I've taken that exam now multiple times yeah. and 
and the first year I bombed it because I hadn't prepared. And the right. second year I ran out of time and did a few dumb things that I got really helpful feedback on right. and, and edited so that I didn't do that, A, uh-huh. in my life in general, because the point of the exam is that you then become a better sommelier. Yep. Uh, but B, that I didn't ever do that on the exam again. And so it was very interesting feedback yeah. to get because it was sort of like, this is hard feedback for me to take seriously. Yeah. At a position where I know that I'm at the top of my service game, right. having worked at two other James Beard Awards service programs, right. like with John Reagan, we won the Outstanding Wine Service. And it, yeah, it was just, it was like, it was interesting to get that kind of feedback from people that that have no experience with me on the floor. Right. Um, in a moment where I was like, I know I crushed that. Yeah. After, and having a decent sense of like, oh, wow, I bombed that. Right. Wow, yes. I need to go and Absolutely. hide in my yep. cave for, you know, a, a minute. Yep. Um, so, and then four days later, I found out I was pregnant. Ah, so you didn't seem exactly like yourself. Well, I, but you know, I'm <laughs> You like, were probably a little bit not yourself. I don't know. It was like, I was like four, I was four, four weeks pregnant at that point. Someone at that table picked up on that. Maybe. I don't know that they were that astute. So, <laughs> it might have But anyway, been. it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Such a blessing. Such because? A blessing. Because then I got to sit back and say, okay, do I want to go back and dive in to mm-hmm. this test again? Is this the thing that, because for, I guess I, I let it define me for yeah. myself, or it's like this sure. test I am this test and I will get this pin and I I can handle it. And I, you know, and then it was sort of realizing that like maybe the feedback from the world is not feedback that matters. Right. Ah. Or like maybe, and, and I think it is, I'm all about feedback. Well, but, but it, you got to get the feedback from the people that you know and trust, not from the random people at the yes, table who've never met you. Exactly. Yeah. And so it just felt like, okay, this is maybe a moment where I need to take some decisions into my own hands and, and start really sort of designing my next steps in a way that I haven't because I've been on this sort of you yeah. know, treadmill of studying and et cetera. And I just felt like there, so the thing that I just, that was a void, a noticeable void anytime I went out to a ball game or, you know, a picnic with my husband yep. or you know, any time that was sort of one of these more casual, traditional beer moments. And then I would just drink water because right. I had at that point become- You never liked beer. Yeah. And it was like, I'm not going to drink something yeah. that I just, that I don't want to drink. Yeah. I don't have to drink it. I'd rather drink water than nothing. Um, and then why, yeah, why, why doesn't someone redo that idea? So it was sort of like the inspiration of like the California cooler, but if yeah. you could elevate it. Yeah. Make it better and bring your expertise to it. Yes. And yeah. And like, well, yeah, right. Like, and yeah. So like that merged with like a spritz and like, right. why isn't someone doing that? So we're going to take a break and then we're going to get all your advice for all of the founders doing things that they want to exist. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 
100 Bogart's Rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's Rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. Hello, hello. I'm back with Jordan Salcido, founder of Ramona. <clears throat> so you knew that you wanted, you didn't like beer. You had all of this wine experience. You were at the top of your game. And you knew that there could be a product that could be delicious and high quality that people could take on picnics and to ball games and everything. Did you look outside to validate that thesis a little bit? Or, you know, were you like, I'm going to now study the, you know, more approachable wine market or wine in a can market or, because what's interesting to me is that while I know yours is different because it's not just like buckets of rosé put in a can and it, you know, it's not kitschy. It's like actually really quality wine and a delicious spritz added to it. And you have integrity in the product. Not to say that others don't, but yours really does. Thank you, Ellie. Um, You're welcome, Jordan. Um, I guess my question is, you knew that this should exist. You wanted it to exist. But how did you know that the world was ready for it? Because there does seem to have been like other people at the same time. Seem There was this sort of like shift in all of a sudden there were no wines in a can and then all and then all of a sudden there were and it was okay to drink it and it was fashionable and it wasn't kind of lowbrow and you know kind of gross yes i think all right so i think a couple things i was i had access to what was available in the market as the buyer of right. a restaurant group with restaurants cool. in multiple locations. And yep. so, you know, you're always getting pitched things yep. and you're always seeing what's out there. And there just was this, it, it was so vast, mm-hmm. the the value system between wines that I would ever put on a yep. list in one of the restaurants or personally consume, and then the stuff that was available right. at grocery stores. And it just felt like, why is there this vast ocean of difference? And 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 then I mean I guess the answer was like because people don't know better. Right. And I felt like I, as somebody who did know enough about what goes into quote unquote like mass wine or accessible mm-hmm. wine, it's it's mostly not an agricultural product. Right. Things like defoaming agents, things like mega purple, things like it's very much a recipe. Right. And then the more that I study this now, the way that it's grown, so organically grown ingredients have been important to me and to Ramona since day one. Um, and it's something that, that you know, as we think about global warming and right. we're, we're sort of all relying on what's left of the rainforest right. to do the work for us, but it, like soil health and the microbes in soil could actually and do actually combat that when right. we're not spraying fungicides and herbicides, all yeah. of that. So I guess like I, I don't want to consume that the right. more I study this now, um, which a, a good podcast, if anyone here is interested in this kind of thing. Listen to Dr. Zach Bush, and he has a couple podcasts. One is on goop, and one is on um, the other one is on plant 
proof podcast. But anyway, right. it just sort of talks about this stuff. And the more I learn about it, the more it's like, okay, as somebody who wants the world to be better for my child and other people's children and future yep. generations, it's just such an obvious thing to just not spray the right. ground with yes. poison yeah. and put that into our water yes. system and then our bodies and then wonder why you right. know, all these things are happening. So not that that's the topic of today, but it just felt like, wow, if we look to Italy they just have a different value system than the U.S. does yep. right now. And so, um, yeah, and it was, fortunately for us, it's it's easy for us to source. I, I had a couple of relationships because of... Us. Yeah, it's kind of the perfect job for you. Like, it brings together everything that, I mean, you didn't have to go out and get market research because you were living market research. I mean, I feel the same way about us, right? Yes, exactly. We have a focus group every single night. Yes. We can ask them all the questions about sauce in the world. Yes, exactly. So you had a market at your fingertips and you also had access to the producers and the resources, right? I mean... What, how did you, how did you name it? Is it, is it really like because of Beverly Cleary and Ramona the Press? So it is named after my littlest sister. Her real name's Anne-Marie. Her childhood alter ego scapegoat was Ramona. (laughs) After Ramona the Press. I am sure I was Beezus to her, like in her narrative of life, I'm sure I'm Beezus. But (laughs) if anyone hasn't, because we do have younger listeners and sometimes I don't know if Beverly Cleary. Maddie, did you read Ramona the Pest growing up? It's so good. It's so good. It is so good. I mean, Ramona, it's not that she's like naughty. It's that she has like no impulse control, which I think is so great. And she's she just learns all these life lessons. And Beezus is like the older sister who's like very together and yes. like wants to be perfect yes. and like can't deal. Yes. So I yeah. love the fact that it's named after Ramona. And then, and so were did the product come first? Did the brand come first? How did that come together? Okay. For you? I would say that all came together sort of quickly and simultaneously mm-hmm. once I, and this also like I sort of decided this after in that same very short period of time of not passing the MS resetting learning. I was pregnant. Getting pregnant, right. And then the, the name came, uh, I happened to have a, a trip to Italy, uh, planned to go visit a couple of vineyards for uh, Bellis, which is a small company that I started back in 2011. And so I was in Italy for that anyway. Mm-hmm. And I find that whenever I'm out of the city, I have this clarity of thought. Yeah. Uh, and so your it, mom knew that my mom, yeah. you're right. You're right. You're totally <laughs> yep. right. And um, so I think it was, and, and that's when I knew the name needed to be that because I was also coming from a place of like, okay, do I really want to get back on this path or do I reject that path? Like that path is like the path Beezus would follow. Yes, and like totally. putting a wine, organic wine spritzes in a can is the path that Ramona would totally, follow. Totally, 100%. And or Beezus would call it like, la zippa dippa yes. you know, via da 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 da. Exactly. I'm trying to speak Italian <laughs> slash French. Right, right. We would have some Latin root Exactly, and it'd be like a picture of like a, like, a single vine yes um yes. but it's not it's <laughs> no. like it's like well tell me about yeah the, yeah so the label we we uh, worked with claudia Wu, who's was the yes. um yeah co-founder and creative director of cherry bomb magazine yep. and i like she had we had worked together on one of bellis's labels and i just loved her aesthetic yeah and as i was telling her sort of the the goal and the mission and the belief system of ramona and i sent her a few images and one was like a girl 
like eating a strawberry in a field with sunglasses yeah and just a few things and she comes back with you know after a couple back and forth she comes back with what is effectively the label um, inspired by the russian like poster propaganda posters of the russian constructivist movement amazing right it was so perfect because it was like there's rejection of the notion that fine art belonged in a gold frame or like fine wine belongs in you know a a very expensive bottle on a white tablecloth no you can why why does why does only a certain segment of the population that know better get to have access to great wine or great art and at the time did you know I mean I know that you understood like the rules about distribution because of the fine wine piece but did you did you know anything about building a CPG brand or like no. any I would say no anything about you know I mean do you sell it because it's interesting like who's the buyer at the is there so I think yeah. it's a few, and this is like something that we are still learning because we're we're now basically a year and a half in. Right. Um, we did a test batch about two and a half years ago, but that was sort of like, hey, is there market right. viability? That's, I did that too. Yeah. Um, and so we're definitely still learning. Last year, we ended up in the Global Whole Foods Summer Program, right. which was like mandatory 47 states, figure Yikes. out distribution. Right. And that was last year at this time. Right. And then this year, our strategy is, is very different. We've sort of learned from that. And mm-hmm. that was a great thing for us. But it's also like, okay, wait, we do not want to go, you know, a hundred miles no. wide and an inch deep. No. We That's want one to... thing I think everyone on this podcast, if they had to like sum up like top three things, it's like fewer doors, yes. deeper velocities. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And figure out why. So that's right. what we're doing now. We're sort of like, what works and why and how do we and how do we repeat that while always maintaining our brand identity right. and our brand integrity. That's the whole thing. What works, why, and how do you hold on to your yes. north? Yes. Um, okay, a couple final questions because I know that we haven't talked as much about what I think that the whole story is super inspiring to founders. So it's less like nitty gritty, like what best advice no, but can let's you give? Do nitty gritty. But let's yeah. do like, let's, what, what has surprised you the most? What would you say you would wish you had known earlier if you could talk to the, I mean, the thousands of millions of founders listening to this, like, what would you tell them? Okay. I would say, um, you're not going to start before you're ready. Yep. And surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are. Approach everything with humility. Um, Make sure your partners, if you raise capital, choose people that... Aligned. Yeah, that have an aligned value system. Make sure you are clear on your value system Mm -hmm. and make every decision, whether it's building your team or selecting investor partners or partnerships with other brands. Make Make sure everything is aligned with that. Let me ask you a question about that. Do you feel that you have defined that value system or do you feel that you and then you've shifted it a little bit because of the people that you work with or the team that you've built? Like, is that value system Jordan's value system? Yes, and it took a while 
for me to like get sort of, yeah, yeah, but it is. And it's also our, uh, our team's value system. Yeah. And so, cause like, they joined you because they are aligned with that value system. And we sort yeah. of wrote it out. Now we actually have a team of eight, which is new. We were a team of three and now we're a team of eight yeah. six weeks later. Wow. But when we were a team of three, uh, we went through and I, you know, we sort of did a few iterative exercises. And then at the end, you know, I had a few calm moments and sort of wrote down our mission and wrote down our values and yep. sent it to everyone and said, what do you think? What would you add? Yeah. Um, and they wrote back and they're like, no, this is exactly what we've been talking about. Awesome. And so I think that's been helpful for us. Great. But I think, and this was a thing again, that I've learned from like other bad jobs that I haven't spoken about, right. here, but like you, you know, you work in an environment where the value system is so unaligned yep. and it just feels so yucky. Yeah. And I just felt like I, I don't, I don't ever want to have to, I, I certainly don't want to be responsible for creating no. a culture that is yucky. What has been your greatest asset along the way? Like, what is the thing that you keep going back to like, oh, I'm glad that this is a part of who I am. Mm, like a part of who I am or a part or of... Or like for me, I can tell you, it's like I'm pretty good at figuring out my resources. Yeah. So if like the shit hits the fan, I'm pretty good at figuring out I need a guy to take the trash yeah. or I need someone to like help with the thing. Yeah. Like, Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I would say I'm good at that as well. Yeah. I think like when you approach everything with humility, then you then you are not afraid to ask ad- for help. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, that, and I would say, I would say, looking at our investor partners, like choosing good ones yeah, because awesome. all of them are also good resources for us. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Or team in general, I would yep. say, because that's you know, that's sort of the extended team, but. We have a great team. Oh. Well, thank you. Um, I, it's been so much fun having you here. I love your story. I love your product. I'm just, I've been like excited to have you on for a while. Likewise. So, the admiration um, is mutual. Oh, good. Um, okay, y'all. So listen next time and I will see you or you'll hear me. I don't know how to finish this off on In the Sauce. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.